The high point of our worship is going to be after the sermon when we, with Jesus' invitation, come to his table, the family table. So we wanted to begin preparing for that moment when we encounter Jesus through the elements of the bread and the wine. We remember what he's done, how much he loves us. We want to begin preparing now. So uh, make this prayer your prayer. Take it into your heart and give it to Jesus. This is a prayer by Bonaventure, who was a Franciscan monk in the 13th century. We pray. Lord Jesus Christ, pierce my soul with your love so that I may always long for you alone. You, who is the bread of life, the fulfillment of the soul's deepest longings. May my heart always hunger and feed upon you so that my soul may be filled with the sweetness of your presence. May my soul thirst for you, you who is the source of life, wisdom, knowledge, light, and all the riches of God our Father. May I always seek you and find you think upon you, speak to you, and do all things in my life for your honor and your glory and your name. Be always my hope, my peace, my refuge, and my help, in whom my heart is rooted so that I may never be separated from you. And God's people say together, amen. An older man in Phoenix called his son in New York and said, uh, Son, I hate to, to ruin your day, but your mom and I are getting a divorce. Forty-five years of misery is enough. And the son says, Pop, what happened? And the old guy says, We're to the point where we can't stand each other. We're, we're sick of each other. And I'm sick of talking about it. So you call your sister in Chicago and tell her. So the brother calls up his sister. The sister explodes. No way they're getting a divorce. I'll take care of this. She hangs up, calls her dad. You are not getting a divorce. Don't do anything until I get there. I'm going to call my brother, and we'll both be there tomorrow. Hang up. The old man looks at his wife and says, well, they're coming for Thanksgiving. They're paying their own way. <laughs> now what do we do for Christmas? <laughs> what would life be without family? Now, I know some of you would say better. It would be better. But uh, we were made by family for family. In the very beginning, in Genesis, it says this. Then God said, let, say it with me, us, make mankind in our image. Us. Who's the us? It's a family. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, they are one God. They each are co-equal, co-eternal, possessing fully the one undivided divine nature. They are one God. But they live as three persons, the Father, though fully supreme, 
he gushes over his son. And the son, though fully God, finds Jesus and him lifted up, draw more people into the family. We were made by family for family. Which means, even though you may never, if you're a Christ follower, allow your name to be on a membership role, you may even absent yourself from worship, the fact is you can no more be a Christian and not be in the church than you can be a person and not be in a family. Relationship with God, it's intimate, for sure. It's personal, yes. It's private, never. Every follower of Jesus takes on brothers and sisters. So the question is not whether, as a follower of Jesus, I'm going to be part of his family. The question is, how do I survive and thrive in the family of God? And I've chosen those verbs deliberately, survive. Because when the church is the church, it's known for dishing out servings of hurt. Christians are not always nice people. Christians don't always have the best interests of one another in front of them. I think I figured out why. The reason is because the moment that we become a follower of Christ and are born again into his family, we don't automatically stop sending. Some of us, let's admit it, sometimes we're cranky. Some of us are sometimes dull. Some of us are sometimes immovably self-centered. We don't automatically morph into brilliant conversationalists or empathetic companions or, or glowing sources of inspiration. Sometimes, can we confess together, the church is a hard place to be because of us. As I like to say, the fleas come with the dog. Survive and thrive. Because when the church is the church, you will find no other place like the church where grace and redemption can flow. When we are brothers and sisters to one another, we can bind up wounds, we can help each other bear up under our addictions, we can tear up when one another suffers, we can remind each other with amazing Jesus words of hope to remind us that even though it's hard now, heaven will settle everything that's now unsettled. And we can be a community, the kind of community where you can actually risk forgiving someone who's hurt you. And risk forgiving the church that's hurt you. God loves it when his church is the church, his family being family, so much that he waxes poetic about it. Our traveling song today is Psalm 133, and from this song we get a glimpse of what God wants Waterstone to be and every church that proclaims Jesus to be. So let's read it aloud together. With that in mind, this is what we want to be. Okay, with me, out loud. How good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity, 
It is like precious oil poured on the head, running down on the beard, running down on Aaron's beard, down on the collar of his robe. It is as if the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion, for there bestows his blessing, even life forevermore. The first verse is God's assessment. What he sees when he looks at us, the, the community. And then the verses 2 and 3 are pictures. Aaron's oily beard and the dew of Mount Hermon. We'll unpack those because that's what community is supposed to feel like. So what does it look like? What does it feel like to be part of God's family? Let's go to verse 1. Two adjectives, how good and pleasant. Now good is used 300 times in the First Testament. It's a common word for good. It, it speaks of anything that brings practical, moral value into your life. So, good is when you learn to look both ways before you cross the street. Good is when you open a savings account. Good is when you exercise. It brings value into your life. Good is making the smart choice because the smart choice will benefit your life. God says community will make your life better. Good. Now the second word, pleasant, is only used seven times in the First Testament, all in the poetic books in the Proverbs and Psalms, and it speaks of something that comes into your life that brings beauty or aesthetic value, like a cinnamon, cinnamon roll, <laughs> fresh out of the oven when the glaze has seeped down into the cracks and you can unroll it an inch at a time and you don't even need teeth to eat it. <laughs> That's pleasant. That's Christian community. Pleasant is the power of music to take you somewhere from your past, to transport you to a memory, to a place, to a time. Pleasant is the power of friends who can, through conversation, draw you out and make you cry tears of grief and laugh tears of joy in one hour because you know you need to do both. That's pleasant. That is, to God, what we should look like. Beneficial and beautiful to one another. So that's the adjectives, but what are the verbs that produce those adjectives? Go back to verse 1. It says, living together in unity. How good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. Let's look at that word unity. Unity is the idea. It's an interesting Hebrew word. It's always used to describe one thing, but one thing among many. So it's used to describe, for instance, one leaf on a branch. Not the only leaf, but one, but among many. It's used to describe one branch on a tree. One branch among many branches. It's a plural one. It's, in other words, many individual parts that make up one thing. Now, we know this well. You know, we've just done the, the 4th of July. You remember what's written on our coinage? E pluribus unum, which means? I heard some kid down here say it. Yes. <laughs> she was in a play, and she knew it. So. Was it Hamilton? You were in Hamilton. No, okay. Yeah. From the many, one. 
There's millions, hundreds of millions of us, and yet we have one flag, one nation, one president, one IRS. <laughs> From the many, one. We know this in the church. Even though there are billions of us around the world, billions, we have one faith, one Lord, one baptism, one Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. From the many, one. Now what does that oneness look like in the church? Let me just throw three quick things out there that we know from when we've talked about the kingdom and seeing the kingdom all the way to the end in Revelation, we know what this kingdom looks like through time. First, it's a colorblind kingdom. We do not divide over the color of skin. We do not divide by ethnic heritage or background. We do not have one flag on our stage. We have all the flags on our stage because God so loved the world. It's colorblind. It's money blind. The greatest joy to a Christian community is not how much we get, it is how much we give. It is when we can see our not only brothers and sisters, but in our community, those who are poor, those who are in financial need, lifted up by our generosity. The kingdom, this family, it's colorblind and it's money blind and it's age immune. Nor do we divide by generations thinking one generation has it all together and the next generation does not. We bring generations together in worship and in ministry and in the way we relate to each other. We prefer one another in our preferences. So this family is colorblind, it's money blind, it's age immune. How do we do it though? Where does that power come from to be those things? I would suggest to you it comes from Jesus and Him praying for us. This prayer He prayed in John chapter 17. My prayer is not for them alone, that the original disciples. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. Who's that, folks? That's us. That's the billions of believers around the world. That of all of them may be one. Father, just as you and I, as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. What is that glory? What is that gas guzzling, skin burning, fire breathing glory that attracts the attention of the world? It's moments generally unseen, except by Jesus, that go like this. The late writer, Brendan Manning, was once in the Atlanta airport, and he went, as he usually did, to the place where, as usually was the case, black men were shining white men's shoes. And Brendan Manning sat down, and he loved to have these conversations, and he loved to affirm these men who were working, and he lifted up their work. But as he was having his shoes shine with this particularly gregarious black man, the prayer of Jesus came through in a powerful way. He was prompted. And the prompting from God's Spirit in his mind was, Brennan, you need to shine his shoes. You need to shine his shoes. So they finished 
Brennan paid the man and tipped him generously. And then he said, now you sit down there. I'm going to sign your shoes. And the black man, he recoiled. No, you can't sign my shoes. You sit down. I'm going to pay you for an extra shoe shine. And I'm going to shine your shoes. And he starts in and begins asking him questions about his wife and his children and his family and his faith. That, that amazing conversation. Although Brennan did say it was the worst shoe shine he'd ever seen <laughs> in his life. At the end of it, there were tears in the black man's eyes. He said to Brennan, ain't no white man ever talked to me like that before. And it ended with white Catholic arms around a black Atlanta Baptist. Another spring of reconciliation unleashed. That's the glory. That's the power. Living together in unity. Living together literally reads sit down together. And when you would think of sitting down together, you would think of home. So the idea of this kind of family, how it happens and how it becomes beneficial and beautiful is that you treat one another as if you are family sitting around the table. And the goal is you are one people going one direction to one place, Jesus, but you make sure no one's left behind everyone together at the table. When the late senator of Arizona, John McCain, died, I watched a portion of the um, PBS documentary, Return with Honor. How many of you have seen that sometime in the past? Really well worth your time. It's the story of the North Vietnamese prisoner of war camp. It was called the Hanoi Hilton. And uh, the brave soldiers who survived that, some, some of them seven to 10 years. They interviewed these soldiers, and the, the, the greatest fear that they had was not the cruelty, not the interrogations, not the beatings. The greatest fear is that no one would know if they were still alive. What kept them alive in the camp was two things. First, they had just an unending sense that they would get home. Home and the promise of home, the vision of home, kept them alive, their family, their homeland. But while they waited to go home, the other thing that kept them alive was community. Now, they were in solitary, isolated cells, but they developed a system of talking to each other by tapping on the walls. They divided the alphabet into five rows of five. They got rid of K, U, C. And they would tap first for the row that the letter was in, and then they would tap second for the place that the letter held in the line. So B, for instance, would be one tap, Line one, two taps, second place, A-B. And they learned to spell out words and sentences, and they kept track of each other. They asked how each other was doing. They told jokes, and a kick on the wall would be laughter. And at every Sunday at an appointed time, they tapped together the Lord's Prayer and the Pledge of Allegiance. And they made sure that no one was left behind. That's community. That's how good and pleasant it is when sisters and brothers sit together in unity. Make sure everyone gets home. That's what God says it looks like to him. That's what he wants this place to be. That's what he wants, how he wants us interacting. But what's it feel like? 
Well, let's go to this first interesting picture in verse 2. It's like precious oil poured on the head, down in the beard, down on Aaron's beard, down in the collar of his robe. This oil, it was God's recipe. God designed this oil, and it was olive oil, cinnamon, cassia, fragrant cane, and liquid myrrh. Now, I don't know what any of those are except cinnamon, really, and olive oil, but I'm told by people who've made it that it smelled like a Yankee Candle buttercream taking over the room. (laughs) It captured olfactory membranes. You could not not smell it. It had an amazing smell. And then do you see the picture? Not just drips of oil, but saturated and Aaron's beard going down his head. Big bushy beard covering up, dripping down onto the collar of his robes. This was a sight and smell extravaganza. An unmistakable picture of the abundance and the power of Christian community. Now, oil is a symbol of God's presence, but it's very interesting that he's pouring it on the priest. The implication of this picture is that God wants you and I, as his anointed priests, to be priests to one another. Think on that. You are not just an attender at this church. You are part of God's family. And as part of God's family, you are priests to one another. You intercede for one another. You pray for one another. You step in to help others in their walk with God. When they're down, you lift them up. When you're up, you look for other people to lift up. You you are a priest. No one has been more poignant on this in the last 60 years than the great Lutheran pastor, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, He wrote this way, describing a community of uh, an underground seminary that he led during the Nazi regime. Therefore, the Christian needs another Christian who speaks God's words to him. He needs him again and again when he becomes uncertain and discouraged. For by himself, he cannot help himself without belying the truth. He needs his brother man as a bearer and proclaimer of the divine word of salvation. He needs his brother solely because of Jesus Christ. The Christ in his own heart is weaker than the Christ in the word of his brother. His own heart is uncertain. His brother's is sure. We live being priests to one another. Now I know that's difficult to do in a church this size. Frankly, I think it's difficult to do in American churches because we're so distracted and worship has just become pretty much a commodity for getting our own tanks filled and we don't really take much time for other people if all we do is attend worship. Our church is desperately lacking. No one's written better on that than Scott Beck in the Wittenberg Door magazine. Churches are structured to avoid community. Pews are designed to keep people apart. Churches are designed architecturally to separate people and privatize spirituality. The church, for many of us, has become a segmented, compartmentalized activity that we do on Sundays, and our real life happens at work. The normal level of vulnerability and intimacy in church has two people sitting in pews right next to each other, but hiding behind their mass of composure, not talking to each other, about the things that are really important. You see, what the early church had in DNA was that they they got into people's homes and they sat down together and they talked about what was important. And they talked about what was wrong. And they talked about what hurt. 
They shared that together. That was church. It was a confessional community. And we need to fight back for that word, confessional. Telling each other what hurts, what's wrong, what's important. We need that word back. You know what? There's still glimpses of it. A few years ago, I knew of a small group here at Waterstone that had a man named Bernie in their small group. Bernie was 40 years old and weighed over 500 pounds. His eating disorder had become a terminal illness. He was given months to live because his heart was no longer able to pump circulation and his internal organs were being crushed by his weight. But his small group committed to be priests to Bernie and his wife, Beth. What did they do? They widened the doorways in his house so they could get Bernie through on a stretcher to his doctor's appointments. And they made sure that Bernie, because they had to spend a special ambulance to come get him for his doctor's appointments, they took time off work to help the firemen lift Bernie into the ambulance. And they, for over a year, provided healthy meals for Beth and for Bernie. And they had a weekly worship service in Bernie's bedroom, which, by the way, was a gallery of drawings that all the kids in the small group had drawn for Bernie. And they sat down with him in the fall weekly and watched his pathetic Washington Redskins play their football games. <laughs> they took best shopping. When the end was near, they sat by his bed. They spoke words of hope and heaven. And they helped Bernie die a good death. And they paid for his funeral. They helped Bernie get home. Do you smell it? That's the oil. That's the oil. The last picture is in verse 3. The dew of Mount Hermon falling on Mount Zion. Hermon is about 125 miles from Mount Zion. Hermon is a 9,000-foot peak in the Lebanon Range. It's the highest point in the Middle East. It's snow-covered year-round. At its slopes, the tributaries of the Jordan River begin. It's as if Mount Hermon is watering the entire Middle East. The point of this picture is that as part of God's family, you and I are to be nourishment for one another to help us grow. You and I are to lay our lives down in sacrificial service for one another so that we can become, start becoming now what we will be in heaven. Right now, we are to become our future glory self. And we do that with help, nourishment, duty from one another. Let me put it this way. Why do you come to church? Well, first and foremost, you come to encounter Christ. You come to sing to him, to proclaim again the, the, what he's meant to you. He's forgiven your sins. He's, he's promised you heaven. He's given you life and significance and hope. And you get filled up and you go out and you share that in another week. Yes, that's it. That's the first reason. But there's another reason. We come not only to encounter Christ, but we come to encounter Christ in one another. As the great Jesuit poet Gerard Manley Hopkins said, 
Christ plays in 10,000 places, lovely in limbs, lovely in eyes, not his. We come to encounter Christ and what he's doing in one another. So it gets to this basic thing. We come to church to meet Jesus, but we also come to church to meet one another. Is that in your mind when you're driving in? Parking, getting ready to walk in the building. Are you mentally preparing? I need to meet five people today. I need to shake their hands. I need to find five people that I don't know, and I need to ask them, how are you doing? Or maybe a risk. And by the way, this is the reason we do those stupid greeting times. (laughs) Would you be willing to take the risk and go, how can I be praying for you this week? Do you know what that is? Nourishment. Do. The greenness. Are you willing to take the risk? Are you willing to come to church to encounter Christ and to encounter what Christ is doing in other people? Oh, I want to be that kind of church. I want to be that kind of community. I want to be Aaron's oily beard in the dew of Mount Hermon. How about you? You know what happens when we are? Did you notice what's repeated again and again and again in this little song? Down. It comes down and down and down. What's the point? The point is, when we're that kind of community, heaven comes down. And we experience that community of what it's like to live in the first family, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So what does this mean for you? Let me suggest a couple of things. One, some of you need to make this your family. And not just Waterstone, it may be any church, any church that proclaims Jesus. But you need to stop making church going an activity, and you need to begin making it family. Not just something you do, something you are, something you're a part of. Some of you really need to step into this and say, I'm going to make this my community, and I'm going to treat this like my family. Enough being on the fringe, enough just being walking in, walking out. Family. You need to make this family. Some of you need to take it one step further. Make it family, and you need to be, to change the metaphor, priests one another. You need to, to own some people that you're going to care for. The best way to do that is to get in a small group. Small groups here at Waterstone, twice a year we have these massive small group movements where what we preach, we, we put you in small groups to talk about during the week. And I can guarantee you, if you get into one of those small groups, you'll grow. But do you know the primary reason we want you in a small group? Not so you can get, but so you can give. We want you to have 12 to 15 people in your life for whom you are a priest. And you pray for them, and you meet their needs, and you nourish them. That's why we want you in a small group, to be a priest. Some of you can be priests by joining our prayer community. Every week, we get two or three prayer requests that come in, people in crisis. We have 111 people. I'd like to double that, have 200 people praying for every request that comes in. We would just email you, and you could pray in any way you want. Fill out an info card. Grab one in the back and the way out. Become part of our prayer community. Be a priest to one another. 
Another way is to become a Stephen minister. Stephen ministers meet with people in crisis. They're lay people who receive 50 hours of training in how to pray, how to listen, how to talk to someone who's in crisis. But we need more Stephen ministers. So if there's any of that that you say, yeah, we, and we need small group leaders in the fall for our next study on 2 Corinthians. So if there's any way you could step deeper in and become more of a priest, we need you. Secondly, so you, you make this family. Secondly, you share this family. We neighbor here. One of our rhythms is that we pray for our neighbors with whom we live, work, and play. We, we have conversations with them whenever we see them, and we invite them to stuff like picnics and alpha and uh, church services. We want you to get your neighbors to your table so they can feel heaven come down and feel what Christian community is like. So will you be willing to share the family? Make family, share family. Lastly, some of you need to become family. Some of you here in this room have never come to the point in your life where you say, wow, I never really thought about that, but I want to be in Jesus' family. I want to have a relationship with him where I, I just submit to him and lay my life down for him and become part of what he's doing in this world. I want Jesus to save me. Would you be willing to pray and ask Jesus to come into your life and give yourself to him, pledge your full allegiance to him, and become family? In fact, we have a prayer to do this right now. And if you've never before prayed to become a follower of Jesus and become part of God's family, just pray this with me right now, silently from where you are. Lord Jesus Christ, I admit that I am weaker and more sinful than I ever dared admit. But through you, I am more loved and accepted than I ever dared hope. I thank you for paying my debt on the cross, bearing my punishment, and offering me complete forgiveness. Knowing that you have been raised from the dead, I turn from my sins and receive you as my Savior. Lord. Amen. If you've prayed that prayer for the first time to become a follower, please talk to one of us. Talk to me. I'll be down here after the service, some of our staff, and we can get you started on some next steps in this life in the family. Now we come to the family table. I'm going to ask the servers of communion to prepare and get ready to come to your stations. Communion is something that Christ initiated himself as a practice in the church so that we would remember him and keep him central. And when we, we take communion, tear off a piece of bread, dip it into the cup, and you can take it anywhere around the room, take it back to your seats. Today with a full house, you might have to stand around and move around people, but we always like that because families are messy. <laughs> so just like talk to each other, or we're gonna be singing or shake each other's hand. This is family time. But take that bread anywhere around the room that you like. It's family table. We invite anyone who loves Jesus and is part of his family to come to this table. Here's why we do it. On the night in which Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, he broke it. He said, this bread represents my body, which is broken for you. As often as you eat it, Remember me. In the same way, after that supper, he took the cup. And he said, this cup represents my blood poured out 
for the forgiveness of sins, as often as you drink it, remember me. So if you're ready to come to the family table to remember Jesus Christ and thank him for all he's done, we invite you to come when you're ready. Any station around the room, gluten-free, is in the back.